This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guests are David and Lila Sophia Tresemer. David has a doctorate in psychology and is associate professor of psychology at Rudolf Steiner College. Lila Sophia Tresemer is a group facilitator, author, photographer, ceremonialist, and transdenominational minister. Together with Sounds True, David and Lila have written a new book. The Conscious Wedding Handbook, How to Create Authentic Ceremonies that Express Your Love. In this new handbook, David and Leela support couples who are beginning their adventure together or deepening an existing relationship, empowering readers with practical exercises for sustaining conscious partnership. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, David, Leela, and I spoke about the most important building blocks of a conscious wedding ceremony. We also talked about the importance of a couple reflecting on their purpose for being in relationship and how, for David and Leela, that purpose is not primarily about being, quote-unquote, happy ever after. We also talked about the role of the witness in a conscious wedding and what we can each do when we're participants to be a source of blessing power. And finally, we talked about how conscious weddings can be portals to conscious relationships. Here's my conversation with David and Lila Sophia Tresemer. In your new book, The Conscious Wedding Handbook, You start the book off by talking about how so many weddings are filled with all of the right accoutrement, if you will, the dress, the tux, the right flowers, the right food, but that the ingredient that can sometimes be missing is a sense of meaning. And so I want to begin our conversation by hearing from each of you what do you think the most important ingredients are to make a wedding ceremony meaningful? The first thing that comes to my mind is the clear intention and the agreement that that matters to the couple, that they are really willing to understand that the opportunity available to them in a ceremony where perhaps they're being witnessed by some people or many people that opportunity means that they can actually create a, let's call it a ceremonial moment, uh, which is defined by them, what that means to them in terms of their own spiritual tradition or belief systems. But it's an opportunity. And to miss that opportunity and just go for the, let's say, the theater of a wedding, which is an important part. We love the theater of it. 
everybody loves the theater of the wedding, but to actually be able to deepen it into a sense of meaning uh, has to be something that they recognize as important. I feel that, um, I mean, you, you must ask the question, why would family members or friends or college roommates travel a thousand miles to attend a ceremony that's 15 minutes long and is it really about another opportunity to have a party? Because you can do that lots of places. But what you can't do lots of places is witness something profound exchanged in that moment between two people. That's what people remember. That's what people will remember. You have an opportunity in a wedding to have witnesses who will see something so profound and it can last one second, we call the sacred moment. It can last one second when they, everyone in the room knows, oh, they really do love each other. And then you have witnesses who are on board with that memory for the rest of your life. You both mentioned this ceremonial moment, sacred moment, and you talk about it in the Conscious Wedding Handbook that often there can be this moment that happens in the wedding ceremony that often isn't even planned. So tell me more about it, that moment, and why you both really shine a light on that. Yeah, I think uh, most anyone listening would be able to recall a wedding that they attended where there was that moment. Sometimes it shows up as laughter and the unpredictable uh, you know, kind of rascality that might appear, and sometimes it's it's really deep and heartfelt, and and the room feels heart opened and perhaps tears in response. So those are sort of the the, the two ends of the spectrum. Uh, I'm I'm a big fan of laughter as well, and you know can consider that that is also can be something remarkable. Um, one of the ways that we attempt to uh, assist a moment or several moments, it's not only just one, is by after the vows and everything that's scripted has been shared, um, to really ask them to deepen into silence and close their eyes and just check in. Is there anything in this moment that's fully alive for you that you want to share with your partner? And many times that's just enough of reaching deeper into authenticity that what bubbles up is spontaneous and often delightful, really unexpected. And, you know, that, that intimate moment then sparks and people, um, people feel it because it comes from really a whole different place than the script. People come with their vows. Um, you know, they, they work with their vows. And when we do weddings, we work with people for three sessions minimum and really work with them to create vows that are not too long, that are succinct. That's, I guess, the same sort of thing. Um, and that really are potent for both of them. And, uh, but some people still insist. They say, well, I've got to do these words and these words, and they want to bring three-by-five cards. And yes, it's okay for these words to be read aloud, but it isn't what Leela was just talking about what is rising spontaneously in that moment. And we try to pull that out of them. And I should say, a sacred moment can occur. Let's say the bride has a really great dress. It's all over the floor, and she trips on it. And the groom, without thinking, 
just the hand reaches out, the whole body goes forward and rescues her, and everybody knows right then. That's what they witness. You know, so mistakes can mistakes can always be also be quite wonderful uh, in a wedding and how how they're worked, how they're worked with, rather than saying, "Oh, oops, we made a mistake." It's how you deal with it. That's the point. Now, it's really interesting that our conversation has gone to this idea so quickly of the sacred moment. Because as I was reading the Conscious Wedding Handbook, I was thinking back to weddings I've attended. And I could remember moments like that. And here's my question. I often, in the audience, when some something happened, and it was almost like the worlds were opening up. I'm not quite sure how else to say mm. it. But it was like the invisible world was somehow participating in the ceremony at that point. And I'm curious what you both would say about that. Yeah, soul to soul. Soul arises, something that is, that is deep, that everybody knows is there. Some scientists say it doesn't exist, but everybody knows it is, kind of in a folk sort of way. But the soul arises. And when soul wants to speak in the ceremony, especially in ceremony, is when soul is active. We can ignore soul in lots of places, uh, most places in our lives, um, and we have structures of society to kind of keep it down. But there you have this opportunity for it to burst forth, and we feel that a wedding structure should have these little spaces created so that soul can arise in a way that the witnesses can perceive and then magnify, because that's, that's what you, when you have people, you know, there's a study that they did about weddings, and they said they actually saw that uh, the divorce rate was much lower in larger weddings. And I think that's part of it, uh, because you have that many people magnifying what they've observed and then beaming it into the whole room. And there's something, too, I think, back to the, the first comment about intention, that Rather than kind of showing up and getting through a formality, it, it's about coaching these two people into an exercise of intimacy so that that can be more relaxed in the context of the actual theatrics of the wedding itself. And we, we actually really love working with couples to, you know, both engage them in some of the processes in the book, but but also to witness how they work together because there's a um, an exchange that starts to happen when you you know go down the the tunnel of okay I've you know set the date for you know a year in advance and uh, you know we encourage them to do a lot of the logistics up front so that as it gets closer that they really can go into that soulful territory together and and take the opportunity to to speak to some of the co-creation of their shared lives and their vision and really the things that matter. Um, I've actually met people who got married and hadn't ever talked about whether they wanted children or not. It's like at one end of the extreme, but, you know, I think there's very many opportunities that get missed for helping a couple really craft the vessel that's going to you know, carry them into the future. And we, we feel, because we love mythic and we love kind of the, the sense of a ceremonial reality, that, that there is a way to capture the essence 
of your life together in the way you create your wedding. You know, that there's a, a little seed kernel there of, you know, what can then be present over the unfolding years of a, of a couple's walking together. Can I say something more about that? Please. Uh, we, we use a um, model called one two one one and then two, and then the, then the big one, capital O-N-E. And that really helps to understand what the role of relationships and uh, long-term marriages, uh, long-term relationships, the wedding being uh, like a, a real uh, boost to a relationship in our view. So the one, the first one is the sovereign individual. So I stand alone and I am taking care of myself. I am growing and maturing and I am strong in myself. And then the two, I, I come into relationship as a strong individual, and something, the, the, it all changes there. It, the possibilities are much greater, and that other person is the best trainer for me to mature even further, because they will reflect back to me all the stuff that I haven't really noticed in myself. Be through that gate, we come to the large one, O-N-E, the, the kind of the feeling of the unity of creation. And, you know, you, you, you have that happening. You, you go down that path when you're dealing with sex. You also go down that path when you're dealing with sensuality or intimacy. We actually feel those are all necessary to really find a true love where you experience the a oneness of and unity of all of creation. And you're meant not, it's not a one-way street. You're meant to go there and then come back, go there and come back, kind of cycle between those three states of uh, separated individual, couple, two-ness, and the big one. And in a successful wedding, that we all rise together in that room to that large one, and you can feel it present. Now, this isn't true in all weddings. This is, in fact, I think, sort of uh, an exception. But um, because there are some weddings that just kind of go through the motions and get right onto the drinking. But um, it's it's possible there. That's the opportunity. Now, one thing I'm curious about is the role of the witness in terms of what participants, what witnesses at the wedding could do to help magnify, as you said, a couple's ceremonial intent. What can I do when I go to weddings to be a good conscious participant? Well, that is a really, really good question, and one that I, I know whenever I have officiated a wedding, I actually make it a point to, before the ceremony begins and before the bridal party even arrives, to invite people to get very present to the fact that they are a witness and that they can participate by supporting what they see and hear and know about the couple, and that each individual in the room can bring through them what's mm, sacred or meaningful to them so that they're not just there sitting and watching, but that they energetically are, I think of it as blessing, you know, that there's an energy of their own connection to the divine or what's meaningful to them that can pour through them, that they can just use um, even active imagination, right, to sort of pour 
pour energy and blessing on that couple to support them in their vows. And the the opposite extreme would be somebody sitting there, arms crossed, uh, you know, being critical because perhaps the ceremony isn't in their own belief system or a tradition, and and they feel resistant. Those are the people that that I like to try to disarm, and they're often in family members, you know, who are sort of wanting their uh, their relative to support the religious tradition of the family. And, you know, it's really important to, to just invite them, you know, to sort of put down that criticism and get very, very present for the, the blessing of this couple who everyone's taken the time out to support. I think also um, some people are arms crossed and some people have their mobile phones going. Uh, photographing it either with stills or movies. And um, we actually think that takes people away from what Leela's speaking about, Um, especially in what we call the core of the wedding, core of the ceremony, where we really recommend, if you have a professional photographer, fine, that's that's okay. But everybody else, just put away your phones. And because what's more important than having a a visual record of of the movements of the bodies in the room um, is to be present and uh, not to be operating a technology, but to be truly and fully as present as possible. And that's when we get into this realm of the, the visitation of soul and the one. It's like with sacred attention, you know, really realizing that what you focus on with sacred attention, that it does matter. Mm-hmm. Now, you gave the example, Leela, of a couple on one far end of the spectrum that hadn't even discussed whether or not they wanted to have children, which would be a, you know, a... a... Shocker. Yeah, it would be a shocker. <laughs> not uncommon. <laughs> Maybe a We love each other. We just want to get married. All that other stuff will take care of itself. <laughs> Go ahead. And you offer in the Conscious Wedding Handbook 82 questions that a couple can ask. And I thought, okay, that's the other extreme. If a couple actually made it through all 82 questions. (laughs) I've never counted them, Tammy. Good for you. (laughs) And I I also did wonder, as I looked at all 82 questions, are people really willing to go through and answer that many questions? Well, I think one of the reasons, I I can't say for sure that (laughs) there are people who have done, I know that for a fact, how many people have read the book and done them all doesn't concern me as much as that they choose the ones that are engaging for them. And because there's different uh, densities of questions, you know, like uh, related to their physical you know, what they can learn about each other physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, what interests them, what, what projects do they want to undertake. Uh, so I think it really depends. I mean, I have definitely worked with, with couples of all ages, not even just younger ones, who, who actually really got into it. And, and whether they did all 82 or I, I, I can't verify, but they engaged and they found them very, very helpful. So that, that's really the point of it. Um, and just to kind of create, especially when, because a lot of people who perhaps are on more of a spiritual path, uh, living with more intentionality in that way, sometimes get very intimidated about taking a vow. 
and and so they they almost get overweighted in you know well what am I supposed to say how do I how do I craft a vow, so some of those questions are intended for them to you know start sharing with each other right. you know more of that material that out of that they can start to craft something that's accurate for them as a vow. Yeah. Now the first question you ask I did get that far. I got I got to the, the <laughs> was how important it is for a couple to know why. Yeah. What's the purpose of our relationship? And I'd be curious to know for each of you what you see as the purpose of your relationship. That changes and that's a good thing that it changes. The process we we ask that question, we say, "Okay, what are the five most important reasons?" that you're in relationship, and then later on, what are the five most important reasons that you'd like to be married? Because we build relationship in the early part of the book or help people to you know, fill in the gaps of their relationship, and then we talk about weddings specifically. So um, we, we ask for five, and then we say, okay, now add another three. This is really important uh, for us as a basis for building the vows and also a process we call in whose name. Um, so we ask, oh, in whose name are we doing this? If, if they're coming to us, it's because they're not going to a Catholic church where the name is very clear or a, a Jewish synagogue. The names are very clear in the regular um, religious traditions. But, when they're, but there are so many more now um, people who are not being married within the church tradition and yet they've thrown out too much. They've thrown out this invocation to something that's bigger than themselves. So we have people and we say, okay, it could be Krishna, it could be Kuan Yin, it could be Jesus, it could be Mary, it could be... So we actually have them work with this. And pe people typically haven't thought about, well, what is greater than me to which I really, which I really admire? And we also talk about principles, principle of love principle of honesty, the principle of respect, that these are actually independently existing spiritual principles. But to bring that back to what's the purpose of our relationship, it, you know, to, it, it actually relates to what David said because we're, we crafted in our wedding that statement um, calling in what was appropriate for us 20 years ago and uh, and naming as best we could at that point of really hadn't known each other all that long. So we were crafting a vow to the best of our ability, which to me equals purpose, right? Like what we're vowing to become as a couple. And over the, I would say over the first eight years, we 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 say our vows many times a week together. And kind of treat it as a uh, sacred imagination that we then found that note and kind of organize our our energies around. And that in the first five to eight years, it went from being sort of two sentences to, you know, two large paragraphs that uh, <laughs> we now repeat. We can we speak it to each other. Yeah, and that it, it sort of creates the, um, the resonance of our commitment to... Uh, our work together, to our work in the world together, to our support of each other's soul journey, to um, 
really being good stewards of the land. We were fortunate enough to be connected to two amazing properties in both Colorado and in Australia that are worked with by many people in the community. So, you know, we, we sort of develop our purpose around the content of our life, and and yet there's also elements of all those questions, <laughs> maybe maybe not all 82 of them, but certainly the core ones about naming, as David said, the, the resonance um, that that we feel we hold individually and together, and then what we are dedicating our life work to, which you know has to do with writing and teaching and sharing and loving the earth and being good stewards, um, both of specific properties and of the planet herself. Now you said something interesting that the vows that you made during your ceremony actually relate to your sense of the purpose of the relationship. And Mm -hmm. that's interesting to me because I could imagine a lot of people approaching this question of what are my vows and doing that, but not thinking about the purpose of the relationship, thinking more like, okay, I'm not going to have sex with anybody else and I'm going to treat you in XYZ fashion and, you know, not necessarily connecting, oh, this is about what the purpose is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is your this is your partner, your best friend. The the biggest predictor of uh, longevity in marriage is friendship. This is your this is your best teammate, the one with whom you'll spend more time in a day than anybody else. And so yeah, let's uh, purpose. And the purpose doesn't need to be, you know, a raise or a career change or a, a, you know any of or getting a book written, that's not necessary. What is necessary is what are the goals of friendship? The goals and the vision and the mission statement. I mean, it's a little bit like having you know, a business contract. I mean, most people spend a lot more time navigating the con- construction of business contracts than they do around their own you know, sense of constructing the contract that will carry their relationship, ideally, through decades if if that's what's meant to happen. And so to, to be able to, to realize that having a vision statement, a mission statement, you know, uh, and as well as practical steps and goals for each year, I mean, it, that, that's sort of obvious if you step back and look at it, right? You know, you're going into a, a, a long-term relationship with this other person, and knowing as much as you can up front is, uh, certainly gives one the sense of, what what lies in the future. So to have people ask some difficult questions, and we, you know, we've heard this from enough couples to know that some of the questions actually are very uncomfortable. And in my experience, better to find out some of those things on the front end yeah. and then navigate and notice how did you navigate because it's going to be the the navigation through some of the challenges is going to be as important as the outcome. Yeah. Now, David, you said something interesting that I'd never heard before, that the best predictor of long-term success in a marriage is friendship. Mm-hmm. Where does that come from? Uh, research by John Gottman, who is uh, he's famous for being able to come into a room where there's a couple, be with them for five minutes, and then predict whether they will be married in a year's time or not with 91% accuracy. 
He's amazing. He's retired now, but you know, he's for many years he was uh, running a laboratory of uh, relationships uh, funded by the NIMH, which was great. I think that they probably wouldn't do that anymore, but it was. I think it probably has done more for the health of mental health of the United States than many other things that they study. So, yeah, John Gottman. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, in terms of talking about this question of the purpose of our relationship, you and Leela were pretty clear in the book that you don't see the purpose of your relationship as happiness. Well, we don't see that as the goal of relationship. Right. I thought that's interesting because I think a lot of people might say, you know, the goal of our relationship is to be happy together. So tell me more about why you don't see that as a goal. Well, I think that that happy becomes a very difficult um, state of mind to which happily ever after fairy tales have really fed the mythos that, you know, you, 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 the guy gets the girl and, you know, they're happily ever after. Um, when all of us know in reality that's you know, you, you find each other and, and then a whole different set of uh, opportunities and challenges appear that are much more the, the true grit of a life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a, a kind of a maturity, um, certainly in our, our Boulder community and communities across the country who are deepening into the understanding that, you know, the complexity of the world is such that simply being happy often becomes more of a, even a narcissistic pursuit than it does about being an authentic human alive in very challenging times. And to be able to have partnerships that can support one another uh, and, and the many challenges that, that relationships will go through, um, to me, those are qualities that are, that are much more enduring than however people might even define happiness. I'm not entirely sure what the word means. I, I, I notice I don't use it as much as perhaps I used to it when I was younger, that, it, that it's sort of lost something for me. Um, I, I can equate better to joyful, um, to meaningful, to authentic. Uh, compassionate and loving. Compassionate and loving. That's yeah. what relationships are best at growing, compassionate and loving people. If you want to settle into happiness, which is sort of a, you know, let's say, you know, I've, all, I've when I was younger, I had this sort of vision that kept coming up of a, a little house with a, a cat and a dog and a, and a wife and two children and boy and girl, of course, and a white picket fence in front and roses on the picket fence, 
and there I would be living, and I, I would live happily for the rest of my days. But my soul is a lot more restless than that, and it wants to go and learn and grow. And happy sometimes for people is, uh, is so fleeting because the soul doesn't care for it except for little respites here and there. But loving, compassionate, fully present as human beings, this is something that relationship is best suited to help with. And meanwhile, I would have to say that D- David and I are laughing a lot more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if laughter, you know, has a part to play in happiness, I'm, I'm all for that too. <laughs> we have a little, we have, we have a question to each other often. Um, when, when the the, uh, the vicissitudes of life bear down hard upon us, one will sort of wake up and t- say to the other, "Are you enjoying yourself?" <laughs> and it's such a wonderful little wake up because why not? No matter what's happening, you can still enjoy the 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 drama and the play of it all and the growth process. Okay, in these 82 questions that you pose yeah, for like people to work <laughs> with, yeah, for a conscious <laughs> partnership, you have an extra credit question at the end. And I really <laughs> liked this extra credit question. It was to talk to your partner about how am I mad, as in crazy, as in mm-hmm. kind of off the rails sometimes. So I, I'm curious to know about this question. Well, it does have a little preface there, which you didn't read, but, but, you know, but, I'm, but thanks for setting me up for that. Um, the preface is that we live in a mad world. So we live in a, a world that where a lot of things really don't make sense. And they are often relegated to dinnertime conversation or uh, at the pub or uh, wherever people meet, the water cooler, about, did you hear, da-da-da-da? And people would agree that the world, in many respects, is wacko, crazy, violent, unexpectable. Um, So the world is mad. So to meet such a world, how are you mad? How How have you developed certain eccentricities aspects of character, particular hobbies or interests, you know, a, a particular way of seeing things. How are, you, how are you also reflecting that in yourself? That does seem like a valuable thing to let your partner know about before you get married. <laughs> okay, now I'm curious how you would address the person out there who takes this posture. I love my partner, but I just don't really believe in marriage. I'm just not the marrying type. Yeah, we see a, we see a, a bit of that. Yeah, we definitely, and that's actually a bit on the increase uh, over the last couple of decades. That stance. So um, we say, yay, yay for relationship, yay for committed relationship, yay for your desire to learn from others, uh, from another, really intimately. And the wedding itself is an opportunity. And if you, if you don't want to take that opportunity, that's okay. But um, don't reject it just because it's part of what you consider a religious tradition. And that there's also some wisdom. If somebody's really saying they're not ready to be married, that's probably a voice to listen to, you know, because, you know, we're still dealing with really high divorce rates. And, um 
I I personally feel that there's not a right or wrong about that approach, that, that people really do need to evaluate what's just accurate and true for them. I, I have become you know, a fan of what can happen in a ritual context, and most people that I've walked down this road of creating their wedding um, in you know, a very direct relationship with them definitely felt something shift when they went through the ceremony. And, you know, if a person's not particularly looking for that or wanting that, then I, I certainly wouldn't be trying to talk anybody into getting married if that wasn't what they were choosing. Mm-hmm. And that's one of my questions. What do you think shifts? I notice that's a question people often ask people who have gotten mm-hmm. married. A couple years later, they say, so what changed after you got married? Did anything change? Mm-hmm. 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 What have you noticed? Well, in a, in a ceremonial context, the way that we would be uh, structuring the the wedding ceremony and what what the book is is attempting to do is to to sort of drive people to the awareness that there is a a holiness you know to to taking a vow and revealing yourself in vulnerability and strength to another person and that by having that witnessed as when David referenced the one to one by having their communion witnessed in that moment, uh, there, there's something about amplifying that that I, I know I personally experienced and I didn't experience in, in my previous weddings. I was married twice before, one very briefly and probably shouldn't have ever happened, but <laughs> that there was something that occurred when David and I got married that was... It, almost in in the the, the ineffable zone, it, it was a it was a it was a huge um, process, and lots of people were involved, and lots of things happened that we didn't plan because um, we were doing a lot of theater at the time, and we we wanted to be surprised by people, so we gave them a, a task and told them how much time they had, and then they got to do whatever they wanted, and it it just. I, you know, I can still remember all the feelings that came up for me because I felt like I was living in a reflection of a community I'd always dreamed was possible, a, a kind of um, elements of the sacred that were of every imaginable color and texture from laughter and hilarity to deeply, deeply profound so for me when i when I walked that path of that ceremony. Something was affirmed for what was possible. Mm-hmm. And that I wouldn't, you know, David and I had been living together. We were doing fine. But there was something that said, okay, and now we're, we're, we're walking this road together. And, and that's never shifted. I mean, it was just such a, a profound sense of we're, we're now moving into the world together. And we, we do work together more than many people do. It really was our preference. That, that was what I was clear. I wasn't going to have another marriage if it wasn't going to be a working partnership um, because that's a, it's just a value that I have of modeling something, you know, in a kind of uh, the, the polarities becoming uh, effective because 
we're very different, and yet our our visions and our mission statements as individuals were really similar. So they definitely uh, synergized when when they came together, and you know, 20 years later, that's that's still true for us. Yeah, very strong. And you see, Tammy, what we're talking about is that word conscious in the title. And um, many weddings are not conscious, and they you know performs a certain function within a community. And some are some, and it will, just the way human beings are, it will be uh, a smaller percentage, uh, seek for consciousness, to be aware of all the things that are happening, and to make it a truly a special day. You know that phrase, oh, it's your special day. Well, to really make it special so that you you, the, the seeds are grown there, many seeds, seeds are sown there in the experiences, many different kinds of seeds in the different parts of the ceremony that then are able to grow through the rest of your, you know, of your time, of your whole life. And I, I, for one, am really, really happy that so much attention's coming up nationally around gay marriages. I just think it provides that same opportunity for people to honor and celebrate their love. So I'm, I'm really delighted that the country is finally having that in a more serious kind of dialogue. Do you think there are any special considerations for gay and lesbian couples when they get married in terms of how to relate to the ceremony? We're still dealing with one, two, one, which is the purpose of the ceremony is to stabilize and uh, accentuate that process of moving from two individuals who actually come into the room at separate times. Two, two of them, but they're both ones, and then they meet. That becomes the two. And then through the process of the ceremony, we touch into the big one, the communion. And then it's witnessed by everybody present who can then be your cheering squad for the rest of your life. Um, as far as, in that sense, the wedding is... Uh, the wedding is the same. We're talking about really deepening relationship because relationship is a, a task and a great training, and it, and it will, when taken seriously, make you into a more loving and wonderful person. As a lesbian who's been in a committed relationship for 14 years now, but I've never had a big public wedding, and I notice that part of what has me unattracted to it is just ways that it feels like the archetypal theater of it, if you will, to use your theater word, just doesn't quite fit. My partner and I get all confused about all the structures that are inherent in the ceremony, from what to wear to one of our fathers giving us away to each other. There's just so <laughs> many things that feel so outdated. And, yeah. and then it's like, well, we would scrap the whole thing and come up with our own ceremony and so anyway, I'm curious how you talk to couples well, Tammy, who are I'm in sure that kind you of situation. Well, Tammy, I'm sure you would come up with your own ceremony. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just in general. Yeah, I think that that's a, you know, a, an, an inquiry for whether, you know, whether there is an intention for that to make a difference or to matter or not. You know, back to the, the earlier question, it's... Um, I think that that's just in the domain of a couple to determine if a marriage or a wedding would create any more significance 
would there be a reason to pursue it or not? And, you know, like I said earlier, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to that question. Um, and I've I've been at weddings that I've I've thoroughly enjoyed that were, you know, n- not following this particular menu in any way, shape, or form, but that were terrifically fantastic, fun experiences. So, you know, I think it just depends what why one would bring that into a relationship. Um, you know, and 14 years into it, you know, you, you may wake up some morning and say, well, no, actually, maybe that does make sense. But well, it, it would come from some really deep place, I would think. We suggest that people get remarried every 10 years anyway because their vows have their vows and relationship have changed. And that is a way of, and, and, in, and in a remarriage or a rededication ceremony, you actually unvow your previous vows and then vow what's really true for you now. And, but I wanted to talk about something you said about the father giving, giving away. And, um, you know, uh, modern women just don't like that idea, especially, you know, when they're a bit older. But it has, it has a certain function that can be done in different ways. One of the main functions for us is that we really feel that the, the bride and the groom, or, you know, whatever you call two people in a lesbian marriage, the two people who are being married uh, are, need to be not worrying about stuff, about details, about anything. And one of the functions there is to have someone lead you so that you can actually feel led. And that will relax you in a way that will make you more accessible to this kind of uh, being aware of presence, uh, being aware of what arises in the moment. And that will lead to this sacred moment more effectively. So it doesn't, in our view, doesn't need to be the father leading the bride. It can be somebody else. And we really recommend that it be somebody, that it be somebody. Mm-hmm. Now, it's very interesting to me if you sort of strip away all of the conventions and you get down to what's actually really required for a ceremony like this to have deep meaning. And so far in listening to this conversation, what I've heard is the sacred moment, the power of witnesses, the deep quality of intention on the part of both people and the purpose of the relationship being embedded in the vows. And I'm wondering if there are any other, what you might call, building blocks. And then the form could take lots of different forms, but what do you think the actual you know, non-negotiable building blocks are, if you will? Right. So um, you've talked about some of the aspects in what we call the core of the wedding. And a core, a very sensitive, delicate core that's, really fizzing and bubbling and really effervescent and full of life and energy and kind of almost a sense of a feeling of a visitation by something truly sacred needs a container. That absolutely is important. Outside weddings are really hard to do, but you can do them if you know that you actually have to surround the space somehow with either people or objects that really create a container, a container of safety because that, uh, and, and just physical presence, because that effervescent, it's like a butterfly flies in, right, and, and lands on your hand. You have to create a, some kind of safety around that. 
So that's another that's another aspect that arises. I, w- I would say the other another element would be um, the weaving of often two different tribes, which might show up as um, actual family members, or if it's not a family weighted ceremony, um, that the different collective communities coming together is is really something to pay attention to, especially if part of the community is represented by different children from previous marriages or relationships. So it gives an opportunity to formally weave a fabric and integrate the participants in the couple's lives um, that that gives sort of a, a naming Right, like if a child's woven into a ceremony, it can often make the difference between the child feeling like they're really a part of that new couple's existence. And I think it's probably as important for parents and, and other relatives, as well as you know, close friends, to just say, "Oh, okay, this, 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 you know, the the ground changed just a little bit here now that that this has been a, a formally acknowledged coming together." Now, a couple times, David, you've used this phrase, the core of the wedding, and I'm, mm-hmm. not, I'm not sure I know what the core is. I presumed it had something to do with the part about the vows, but what do you mean by that term? Yeah, well, there's a central part, what we call the core, it's, uh, both in time and in space, so it's in the center of the space that you're working with. Um, sometimes the wedding couple and the celebrant steps, even just two steps, when it's time for the vows and for ring exchange. I mean, rings, rings, they're often, it's often zoomed through this portion about rings. It's so powerful. You are taking something and putting it on another, and that is probably the only thing they will never take off, right? (laughs) (laughs) Night and day for some period of time, maybe a long period of time. And uh, that is the, the, that act is not just something to be railroaded through, but uh, to really be felt as, as for the power it has. So anyway, vows and rings, that's kind of the core. All the other stuff about readings and music and all that stuff and flowers, that all supports the core around it and the people, the witnesses. We got um, pretty interested in doing weddings out of a ceremonial practice of exploring how an eclectic community like like this one in Boulder would... Um, start to celebrate other kinds of events like full moons, solstices, equinoxes, things like that, without giving them a particular spin um, through one kind of spiritual uh, uh, path or another. And what we found in in possibly reinventing the arc of a, of a ceremony, because they've been going on for you know thousands of years, is that there really is an arc and and Part of the arc is to gather the energy, whether you're doing a sweat lodge or a, you know um, something involving you know dance and music. You, you're you're kind of wrapping your arms around this event and drawing the the energy in a little bit closer as it approaches that moment of the exchange. And generally, it would be the vows, the ring. You know, in that area where all the attention, the readings, you know, starting with people, you know, coming into the facility, 
and being shown to their seats and then read to or had music played or whatever. It's all part of kind of warming it up and setting a tone and, you know, finding something ideally that's meaningful to the couple so it all has their brand and their stamp on it to where, you know, it's almost like the the uh, the visual of, you know, that uh, a little uh, beam of light comes down into the, the center and just really emphasizes that core, that this is the moment, this is when the other, when the third thing is really uh, acknowledged and felt, that there's, you know, the two people, their individuality, and then that third communion or higher one is... Its, its presence is felt. So for me, that would that's what I'm what I try to aim for as a uh, as a celebrant is where that can be really genuinely felt and experienced and co-created by the two people. Now I'm curious to know for both of you why participating in conscious weddings is so important and attractive to you. Why do this? <laughs> I love being married to David. And I've learned so much about um, everything that I see so many other people struggling with. And I've actually found it extremely easy to, to navigate these 20 years uh, with someone as you know quirky and talented and brilliant and mad mad <laughs> as he is, and I found that i it started by just wanting to uh, we started doing couples workshops and you know trying to to find simple ways of creating exercises to sort of help people understand how they could do for themselves you know something that didn't have to be so you know traumatic. And uh, and then it started leading to people asking us to marry them, and one thing led to another, and and we just found that we had a lot that we wanted to share about our own experience. Yeah, that's been going on. Yeah, that's people wanted to get on that same train, which obviously they they can't do. It has to be their train, <laughs> and we're we're very we're very aware of that. And and yet I really do feel that there are fundamental and quite simple principles in being able to co-create something rather sublime. And so for me also the uh, motivation of seeing so many opportunities missed. I mean, the United Nations, right, the Demographics Department of the United Nations gathers statistics on 182 countries. In every country, marriage happens. I mean, that's amazing. Think of all the diversity of human cultures and styles and uh, religious beliefs and rich and poor and all the variety of humanity that is on this earth. In every country, people marry every year at relatively similar rates of marriage because there's something, there's something there that really, uh, that really speaks to people. What I've been seeing in modern in our modern American society, is that people are um, missing the opportunity increasingly, that it hasn't, doesn't have the same meaning, and they just kind of zip through it. And now I've watched alcohol creep in from a half an hour after the wedding to immediately after the wedding, and now even before the wedding, people are taking their drinks into a wedding ceremony, and uh, all the, because the 
bride and groom want to please their friends. And that's, uh, that's unfortunate. That's misguided. That's missing an opportunity. It's a huge expense. Even the cheap ones are expensive. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it, people concentrate on, well, I'm sure if the dress is okay and the flowers are okay and the wine's good and the invitations look pretty, that'll, that'll do the trick. And it doesn't. So I felt a kind of opportunity there to help others find that opportunity. And just one final question for you both. Our program's called Insights at the Edge. And normally I ask people, well, what's the edge in your own life that you're currently working with? Your growth edge, if you will. But I would be curious, since our program today is about conscious weddings and conscious partnerships, what you would say the edge is, if you will, in your relationship that you're working on. The first thing that occurs to me is that we are about to be doing a lot more traveling and teaching and uh, engaging in a, a program. I won't go into that, but that's you know in some ways related to this and certainly um, supported by this work. And it's going to mean us not being in one of our two amazing communities between Australia and Boulder, it's going to mean being on the road a lot and um, finding a way to stay balanced and integrated and healthy and connected when some of the stresses of travel are are going to be um, on our plate. (laughs) Yeah, we um, were involved in a program that teaches a psychology certificate that really emphasizes soul and spirit. And in in um, um, complementary, friendly opposition with uh, the rise of psychopharmacology drugs and um, cognitive theories, um, and the rejection of soul and spirit. So we're that's really, and we feel sort of a sense of mission around this in relation to relationships and weddings, also, because that is where soul and spirit are invited. And they can, they, they are able to show up, and everybody will feel it. And it's such a great opportunity. You know, insights at the edge, it's like um, an edge can be, uh, an edge is always where the most life is between, for example, the sea and the land. Right at the edge there, that's where the, the life force is the most powerful, where these two forms are in interaction. So an edge really is when any two people are next to each other, there's an edge between them, which is potent, fizzing, and uh, that, that is accentuated in relationship, in a committed relationship, and via the portal of a wedding. I've been speaking with David Tresemer and Leela Sophia Tresemer. They're the authors of the new book, The Conscious Wedding Handbook, How to Create Authentic Ceremonies That Express Your Love. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you, Tammy. Pleasure to speak with you. Yeah. SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.